from WGMU and the Department of English at George Mason University, this is Mason Out Loud, featuring the best writing and research from Mason's creative community. I'm your host, Deborah Latanzi Shudica. Today we hear a short story from Samuel Ashworth, a second-year MFA student in Mason's fiction program. His fiction and essays have been published in The Catapult, The Times Literary Supplement, The Brooklyn Rail, Roads and Kingdoms, and Book Slut. A native of Manhattan, Sam now lives in Washington, D.C., and is working on a novel about the life and death of an American chef, told in the form of an autopsy. Here is Samuel Ashworth reading Stieglitz and Meyer, One Night Only. Despite the freezing February cold, they have packed the house to the rafters tonight. Doctors here to witness a pair of medical impossibilities. Historians for whom these men are the last brittle links to a vanished century. College students whose souls are just beginning to warm to the flame of nostalgia. Family members who have longed for this moment for years. Aging Jews for whom Yiddish is a half-remembered babble their booby spoke. And curious New Yorkers, for is there any other kind of every color and income in politics? All have come to see the miracle men, Stieglitz and Meyer, one night only. It is rapidly becoming apparent to the audience why it had to be just one night. Yo, says Stieglitz, his ancient cavernous nostrils flaring. You wouldn't know Chinese food if Mao Zedong himself fed it to you. Listen to him, says Meyer. Once, 70 years ago, he goes on a business trip to China, and suddenly he's an expert on Chinese food. You know, there's more than one kind, yes? There's Hunanese, there's Cantonese, Sichuanese, Pekingese. Pekingese? That's not a food, it's a dog, you ignoramus, says Stieglitz. The stage lights glint off the metal frames of his spectacles. Both men appear shrunken in pale white against the black backdrop, but Stieglitz is clearly the smaller man. He keeps his movement to a minimum, merely jabbing a finger at Meyer to punctuate his point. A racist, he's calling me, cries Meyer. He spreads his arms out and looks to the audience for support. I, who walked arm in arm with Dr. King. You never walked with Dr. King. Eh, I would have, but I was a hundred years old then. At a hundred years old, Yvonne, I should risk my neck to fly all the way down to Birmingham so the Gestapo thugs can club me in the head? Would that have made you happy, you sadist? The moderator coughs into the microphone. Gentlemen, she says, shuffling her note cards nervously, if we could get back to the question. What question? Meyer says sharply. His voice is reedy but vigorous, his diction quick despite his lingering accent. He seems almost to chirp when he speaks, while Stieglitz possesses the hoarse, tattered remnants of an operatic baritone. I think the question was about whether you felt New York had changed more over the last 25 years than in the hundred that preceded it. What? says Meyer. What kind of question is that? It's a perfectly good question, Stieglitz says. So answer the young lady, says Meyer. I will if you will permit me. I just want it known... Meyer says, 
that I walked with Rabbi Stephen Wise, who walked with Dr. King, arm in arm even. So yes, by the transitive property, I, Felix Meyer, walked with Dr. King. The transitive property? Oi, never went to college, but now he's a mathematician. Look, young lady, unlike this Altakaka, I've lived all my life in New York. All? What do you know? Yes, all. You weren't born here, Meyer scoffs. So new. I was born on the ship. Same thing. Certainly more American than you. My parents were in steerage and the squalor. It's a miracle I lived. Miracle isn't the word for it. Awkward laughter ripples through the symphony space audience. Outside in the atrium, archival materials have been generously provided by the Stieglitz and Meyer families and mounted in glass vitrines by courtesy of the New York Historical Society. Here, on fine thick stock, are invitations from each man's sesquicentennial birthday party. Here are clippings from the New York Times profiling Meyer and the Daily News profiling Stieglitz. Here are yellowed advertisements placed for Meyer's delicatessen in long defunct papers like the Tribune and the World. Here is an obituary for Maisie Stieglitz, survived by her loving husband Reuben from the sun in its final year of publication. Here is a baseball signed by Christy Mathewson, procured by Stieglitz for his then four-year-old grandson Heinrich. Here is a Mets cap on which is scribbled, To Felix Meyer, the only man in the world older than me, signed Casey Stengel. Here are small sepia-tinted dry plate photos of each man in his youth. Meyer so large he dwarfs the stool he poses on. Stieglitz in wire-rimmed glasses, holding a book and looking grandly down his significant nose at the camera. Here are school records showing each boy enrolled in the same sixth grade class at the Hester Street Grammar School. And here finally are two ledgers from the Castle Garden Immigration Station from August of 1962. Stieglitz, Reuben, Infant and from May of 1868, Meyer, Felix, six. So abundant is this cornucopia of documentation that the browsing audience member might be forgiven for failing to notice that amid it all, there is not one photograph of Stieglitz and Meyer side by side. Speaking of miracles, gentlemen, the moderator injects, sensing an opportunity to restore order, I'd like to ask the obvious question. Why aren't we dead? Says Stieglitz. Nervous laughter from the audience. I might not have put it that way, but what other way is there to put it? I can't speak for this one. Meyer jams his thumb at Stieglitz. But I try to treat every man equally and decently. You know, young lady, we Jews have an expression. Tikkun olam. It means loving kind. You can't even smell tikkun olam, snorts Stieglitz. But if I may ask, there must be some kind of medical explanation. What's the secret? Do you just age more slowly? The secret? Meyer sighs and steeples his fingers in front of his lips. A creaking from the audience as the doctors inch forward in their seats. Of course you want there should be a secret. The secret is... I have been old a long, long time. Do you know how many funerals I've been to? How many friends I've put in the ground and said Kaddish for? 
150 years old, and for the last century, it's like I haven't stopped sitting shiva. Stieglitz nods at this, pursing his lips in assent. Meyer takes off his glasses and wipes them on his white checkered shirt. They are still bleared when he puts them back on, but he seems not to notice. His eyes are bluish, vague. He looks out at the audience, then shrugs. So much loss. Maybe it's good people don't live so long. But from this, from this you don't want to hear, I know. My granddaughter, the doctor, she's there in the third row. Actually, she's my great-great-great-granddaughter, but who can do the math? She told me maybe my genes don't unravel, like a lobster. You know what she asked me? You know what she asked me? She asked, could she study me? I said, are you crazy? I said, if I'm part lobster, I don't want to know about it. Next, they'll boil and stuff me like Maya Thermidor. Huh, that's how come he knows so much about Chinese food. Stieglitz cackles. He's half treif. Meyer snorts. But surely, the moderator says, you must understand at some fundamental level. We don't ask questions, says Myers. Man tracht und Gott lacht. You know what that means, young lady? It means man thinks and God laughs. So I don't look for answers. Maybe that's the secret. Or maybe I'm a mutant, like an X-Man. The audience titters. Like a what? says Stieglitz. What's an X-Man? For the first time, the moderator is amused. You know the X-Men. Know them, smiles Meyer. For 80 years, I've had grandchildren ask me anything. I like the Jewish one, Magneto. Even when he was bad, I liked him. What's an X-Men? Stieglitz shouts, thumping his armrest. It's a comic book, explains the moderator. It's about mutants with superpowers. <laughs> no wonder. 150 years old and he's still a child. Always you were a child. In your life, you never read a single book that didn't have color pictures. You hear what he talks? Meyer appeals to the audience, which is beginning to shift uncomfortably in its collective seat. You want to know what Mr. Big Shot with all the diplomas did with that fancy schmancy education. Goes into real estate, starts buying up half the tenements on the Lower East Side, screwing Jews in the process. A shanda for the goyim. A scandal on his own people. What do you know, barks Stieglitz, roused to anger. Do you know what I did for our community? What do you know about supporting your own people? I know plenty, says Meyer. Their eyes meet for the first time and narrow. Each dares the other to speak the next words. Meyer's hand twitches at his side, as if toying with the strap of an invisible holster. The silence of unsayable things bulges in the air, purple and swollen, ready to burst at the prick of a pin. In the front row, newlyweds Ruthie and Jeremy Meyer Stieglitz are sinking deeper into their seats. They have begun to realize why their reclusive great-great-great-grandfathers agreed to this night of interrogation. After all, the fact that the two men are in the same room at all is entirely their doing. It had seemed like a perfectly good idea. When Ruthie and Jeremy met at NYU and wound up in love, they always joked about their families being the Jewish Hatfields and McCoys, Ruthie, the Hellmans and the Coens. But it had never been explained to them why their Zaydis Felix and Reuben disliked each other. Neither their parents nor grandparents seemed to know either, and so the family's enmity seemed to them more pro forma than anything else. When they announced they were engaged, family resistance was token, 
It happened before we were born, their parents shrugged. Thus, Ruthie and Jeremy came to see their family's feud as a strange, inconvenient tradition clung to for tradition's sake, like a familial version of alternate side parking. Yet Ruthie and Jeremy were bright young people into whom it had frequently been drilled that they should try to be the change they desired to see in the world. Clearly, their great-great-great-grandfather's hatred had long ago become habit, and that habit alone had sustained it. It stood to reason they agreed that once the two old men were on stage together, they would realize that neither one could, in fact, remember the cause of the original disagreement and that they had far more in common than they thought. And thus they made a request. In lieu of wedding gifts, they told the old men they had only one request. A meeting. One time. This was a chance to finally bring their clans together. Grudgingly, the old men agreed. Ruthie and Jeremy were thrilled and told everyone they knew. Inevitably, one thing led to another, and the whole family got involved. An uncle who was a journalist wrote the first article. Then a cousin who was a publicist proposed putting them on stage, and before long, it had become a whole thing. The advanced press focused, with no small self-congratulation, on the only-in-New-Yorkness of the descendants of two medical miracles having fallen in love. No mention was made of any feuding, for the publicist uncle had forbidden reporters to ask either man about the other. Their appearance was billed as a night of reunion and reminiscence. Ticket sales were brisk, but as the date neared and public interest built, the old men didn't seem to mind the prospect of an audience. If anything, they seemed to the young couple more game than ever. Ruthie and Jeremy took this as a good sign, a signaling that the men were ready to reconcile. I thought you knew, Stieglitz would say to Meyer, and Meyer would reply, Me? I thought it was you. They would laugh, they would embrace, they would feel silly for a moment, but the silliness would pass, and they would eat lunch together on Wednesdays. But these are Jews. Six thousand years of history, every last minute of it written down. 150 years ago, might as well be yesterday. Felix Meyer and Reuben Stieglitz remember everything, and tonight they have come armed to the teeth. As long as we're on the subject, says the moderator with forced brightness, Mr. Stieglitz, you were one of the very first employees of Goldman Sachs, weren't you? Go on, ask him why he left, cries Meyer. Don't let's discuss it, says Stieglitz. Gives me heartburn. Pretty neat take to have heartburn when you don't have a heart, says Meyer. In 1929, he leaves. I'll tell you, 40 years, this hold-up-nick spends convincing people, his people, to put their money in the market. He tells them he'll double their money. And to his friends, he says, trust me. Even to old widows, he says, trust me. And they believe him. Why? Because he speaks good. Because he wears pinstripes and keeps his shoes shined. And what happens? Pff, goes the stock market. Pff, goes their money. And he barely suffers. Barely suffered? Cries Stieglitz, apoplectic. I lost everything. Meyer curls his lip. Sounds like a good start. Uh, gentlemen, I, I think the question the moderator hazards, but she might as well be holding back the ocean tide. Stieglitz throws up his hands. What did you want me to do? Go door to door? Get on my knees and grovel? Ah, you don't know what I did. I never did anything wrong, but still, I atoned. Any charity that came to me, I gave. 
I turned down my pockets. I gave tzedakah until it came on my ears. Do you know how many Jewish children went to Israel because of me? I've worked with Dr. King, he mimics Meyer's voice. Oh, sure, sure. You want to know from whom I walked with? George Wallace, maybe? The eyes of Stieglitz bulge. Slander! Only I'm asking the question. I'll have you know. Always, I had a lot of sympathy for the Schwarzes. Schwarzes? Still you're using this word. They can be doctors now. Gentlemen, the moderator says a little more ambitiously. Who's saying they can't be doctors? cries Stiglitz. I've marched arm in arm with Dr. King, hollers Meyer, banging his fist on his armrest. And I've walked with Theodore Heitzel, Jacob Schiff, cries Stiglitz, matching Meyer bang for bang. I fought for Israel. I helped to build a new home for our people. Oh, Israel, 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 always with the Israel. If you love it so much, you should move there permanently. At least I kept up to traditions. At least I show up in shul. I didn't raise a family that intermarried into oblivion. But what do you do? You, in your filthy rat hole of a restaurant, you get the whole neighborhood hooked on Chinese pork. It's because of people like you, the Jews lost their way. Gentlemen! The audience can hear in the stillness the creaking of seats, the breathing of ventilation systems. Out in the darkness of the theater, the first three rows have been reserved for members of the Stieglitz and Meyer clans. They sit like families at a wedding on respective sides of the house. Among them are geriatrics with whistling hearing aids and sullen teens slouching in button-downs and khakis. New fathers with sleeping infants swaddled to their chests. Single mothers worried the sitter has invited her boyfriend over the ultra-Orthodox and the converted and the reconstructionist and the turn to Buddhism and the renegade Scientologist, actors and doctors and brokers and burnouts and locksmiths, the divorced and the polyamorous and the openly polyamorous and the late-in-life lesbian, for every last one of them, Stieglitz and Meyer, have each taken the time. They have learned their names, met their children, told them stories of the city that came before them, great-great-great-nieces writing school projects on old New York they have described growing up in tenements with walls so thin they could hear the rats scuttling along the pipes. With the teenagers, they are more risque, talking about how when they were young like them, you couldn't hardly sneak off into a closet with a girl without the whole Lower East Side knowing about it. Still, they caution the little ones not to trust the Goyim. To be nice, to treat them decently, that religion is still young, Meyer says. They get a little overexcited, but never entirely to trust. They delight in new babies, never miss a bris. They have buried every one of their own children. There's no need to shout, Stieglitz admonishes the moderator. We're all not deaf, Meyer says. The moderator is flustered but stands her ground. Gentlemen, I'm sorry to raise my voice, but I'm not sure our audience expected you to be so, she searches for the word, antagonistic towards one another. You grew up on the same street together, didn't you? Familiarity breeds contempt, mutters Stieglitz. But still, the moderator presses, she is going to get this thing back on track if it kills her. I understand that you were friends once. Can I ask you what happened? 
the family members in the crowd, front rows, lean forward. The old ones adjust their hearing aids. This question has been asked before, but in living memory has never been answered. At first, neither man speaks. Stieglitz fiddles with his gold tie clip. Meyer wipes off his glasses again. He takes a sip of water. A cough rings out from the audience. The creaking and humming of the theater begin to encroach again. Have I told you about my wife? Says Stieglitz to the moderator, who is now visibly sweating. Maisie. We grew up on the same tenement on Hester Street. She lived down the hall. Ninety-two years we knew each other. Seventy-two years we were married. Wonderful woman, nods Meyer. Wonderful woman, says Stieglitz, his voice tremulous. Kind to everyone, and funny, funny like you wouldn't believe. Thick as thieves, Maisie and me were as children, Meyer says. Always be straight friends. Even after she married this one, Meyer jabs a thumb. He would go away on one of his endless business trips, and to me she'd say, Felix, I can't stand it. Felix, he's always away. Sometimes I can't even remember where or with who. She said he never stops working. He's crazy. No, do, do you know what she believed? That he loved his job more than her. Always it broke her heart. Okay, says Stieglitz. What a woman like that was doing with a gonif like you, I never understood. That's enough, says Stieglitz, quietly. But Meyer either doesn't hear him or doesn't care. I'll tell you a story, he says, squaring up to face the moderator. It's as if he's forgotten the audience is there. He pretends he's a tzaddik, a holy man, a saint, when really you know what he is? A hypocrite, a money grabber. You want to know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Stieglitz's grim eyes warn Meyer not to proceed. Meyer takes no notice. It's 1960, and I get a call one night. It's Rachel, this one's daughter. Maisie is in the hospital. I don't ask why she's calling for me. I know why. 98 years old, and Maisie still has all her marbles. If she's calling me, it must mean it's bad and that this one is out on business. Maybe you've noticed we don't get along so good. The audience laughs automatically, anxiously. The mouth of Stieglitz twists itself into a withered snarl. It's February. It's freezing out. A night like this, but the snow is everywhere. I haven't seen her in a decade, and I'm almost 100, but I don't hesitate. I'm out the door on my way to St. Vincent's. For Maisie, you need to understand, any of us from the old neighborhood would do it. She would have done the same for us. I get there, and there's the whole family. Only one person is missing. He's in Philadelphia, speaking at the Walton School of Business. Meyer enunciates every syllable with contempt. His wife is dying, and he's giving a speech to the young Republicans, to the blue blazer-wearing Nixon youth, about how to stoop the little guy. Meyer is almost shouting now, and the moderator tries to cut him off. Mr. Meyer, please, I was hoping we could keep this civil. You had no right! Stieglitz bellows, but Meyer is a runaway train. At least there was someone! She should never have left her so alone! At the end, even as she's delirious and dying, do you know what she's asking? Don't. Where's Ruben? She says. It's all she asks. Where's Ruben? And all the gaskets blow at once. Three hundred years of collective hatred come geysering out of Meyer and Stieglitz. 
The noise is spectacular. The microphones crackle and pop like hot oil on a skillet. The men roar and spit as if they weren't of a day over 70. There is only one rule. Man the decibel guns and keep firing. What did I do? God! Stieglitz implores the heavens, his face red and Nick Waddle quivering with indignation. To deserve this man, of all the other poor schmucks you could have saddled me with for a hundred and fifty years, why, God, why pick him? So where were you? Meyer spreads his arms wide to the audience. And I haven't even told you the best part, the real act of chutzpah. I'm at Maisie's bedside and she's calling for him, so I say to her, Ruben loves you. His name I haven't so much as spoken in 30 years, and I'm saying he loves her over and over, so it's the last word she hears as she's passing, God rest her soul. And what does he do in return? That had nothing to do with it, cries Stieglitz. You're crazy, certifiable, evicts me, kicks me out of my own delicatessen. My business, what I built with my own hands from garnished, just like that, like the Tsar of Russia, wiping out whole Jewish villages with the stroke of his fountain pen. Please, Siglitz spits. Hockney Kanchainik, that's capitalism, that's America. You don't like it, you can gag us into hate back to the old country. It was the 60s. Suddenly it was everybody eating health food and vegetables. Nobody was eating your fatty garbage with the schmalch and the kishkas and so on. Did I raise your rent? No. Did I break the law? Never. Every opportunity I gave you. All you had to do was change, evolve. That's the American way. That's your America. All right, says Meyer. The America of ripping a man's business from him. The business of America is business. But you're not a businessman. You're a buffalo. So what did you expect? That I should let a schnorrer like you sponge off me when the only reason his business is going kaput is because no one with two taste buds in his head wants to eat his lousy knishes. Lousy! My gnishes were magnificent! Stieglitz makes a face and waggles his hand, palm down, fingers flat. Eh! He says. In the theater, it's like a thunderbolt. Meyer's jaw moves agog, but no words come out. Slowly, he points a trembling finger straight at Stieglitz's chest. You, you know what you are. What, what am I? Go on, say it. After all these years, say it. You are a bad Jew. Stieglitz's eyes go wide. And you, you are a... a, a, a. His frail hands clutch his throat and a gurgle escapes his lips. He stiffens in his chair, polaxed and then slumps over, toppling out of the chair and onto the floor. Stieglitz! screams Meyer, rising from his chair with painful speed. Stieglitz! Oh, God! A, a doctor! Someone get a doctor! The moderator is frozen in place, her hands over her mouth. Jeremy Stieglitz jumps up from the first row and vaults onto the lip of the stage, heading straight for them. Call an ambulance! Call the Marines! Meyer is shouting, now on his knees before Stieglitz. He seizes Stieglitz's hand. Stieglitz, don't you do this to me! Hey, is there a doctor in the house or not? Seventy-five members of the audience stand up and start moving toward the stage. Stieglitz, don't you dare leave me now! Stieglitz, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! 
Tears are brimming in Meyer's eyes. He kneels by the slumped body of the old man, imploring him, gripping his limp hand, weeping, murmuring words in Yiddish that no one else in the theater can understand. Aha! cries Stieglitz as his eyes flick open. He jabs his finger into Meyer's lapels. Aha! Meyer gasps and reels backward. For a moment, he looks like the one having a heart attack. Trembling, his watery eyes glimmering, he raises a bony finger at Stieglitz. You terrorist! You're a lunatic! Insane! You want to be locked up, you know that? Locked up! Aha! Stieglitz crows as he gets to his feet and does a little soft shoe. You're crazy! A psychopath! Maisie was right about you! Police! Help! Police! The rest is maniac! Police! May they live forever, from generation to generation. Amen. We had a chance to sit down with Sam and talk about his writing process. This story came about two-thirds formed at about six in the morning. Um... It, I got the beginning, and I got the end, and I got them really fast, and then the difficulty was filling in the middle. It, it happened because I had been doing a lot of uh, research and work into the history of the Jews, especially in New York, dating back to the early 1800s, and uh, the way that, that that nostalgia informs Jewish identity today. And specifically, I had read a story called the Anarchist Convention by John Sayles, um, which I actually heard it. It was a selected shorts read by Jerry Stiller. And I strongly recommend it to anybody because it's the story of old, senescent anarchists getting together at a dingy hotel in New York for one last convention. And Chaos breaks out before the dessert course even starts. And it's very much the history of uh, Jews, secular Jews specifically in America. And to hear Jerry Stiller do that in, the, in that very specific Frank Costanza voice um, triggers something uh, very, very powerful in me. And... I wanted to do something in that voice, and I think I lay awake at 6 a.m. thinking of what I could do with that, and then the idea of two men on stage reminiscing about their past sort of occurred to me, but that was a banal idea, and then I realized, of course, that, um, you know, we say two Jews, five opinions. Um, we, the idea came to me that they should uh, hate each other, that they have known each other for 150 years and that they can't stand each other. Mason Out Loud, the podcast, is made possible by the Department of English at George Mason University. Michael Hawk is our producer and engineer. Music by Sean Pfluger. You can find us at english.gmu.edu. Mason English, write your future. <laughs>